Welcome back to Civil Action with Brian Kabatek and Sean Karnikian from Kabatek LLP in Los Angeles. This is our weekly show dealing with uh, new cases, recent cases that affect the plaintiff's practice in California that might affect your practice, interesting cases that come down legislation, what's going on in Sacramento, what's going on to affect your practice, hopefully bringing it to you in a quick synopsis. Our firm uh, is happy to consult with you and talk about your cases and talk about the cases we're going to talk about today. So, Sean, let's get started. What are the interesting cases that we're sure. going to talk about? We're going to go over uh, six cases today. The first one is going to be a PAGA case, which considered the application of the Supreme Court's EPIC uh, systems case to uh, the PAGA action specifically. And then we're going to talk about an employment class action and the requirement that a trial court in issuing an order on class certification uh, go beyond just a conclusory statement uh, and provide some reasoning. Then we're going to talk about an employment discrimination case and the applicability of the religious organization exemption uh, in employment cases. And then we're going to talk about a 473B case, and that's the code section where you can seek relief in a case where a voluntary dismissal was filed. Then we're going to talk about an elder abuse action, which establishes that there need be no special relationship between a party seeking to um, obtain a restraining order against another party. And lastly, we're going to talk about a case called Anderson versus State Farm, uh, which deals with the timing uh, or the start of the clock for seeking removal of a case to federal court. All right, so we got a lot of cases to talk about today, so let's get first started with Korea versus NB Baker Electric. That's the case involving PAGA and the United States Supreme Court decision in EPIC. Uh, so plaintiffs in this case sued their former employer, which was NB Baker, uh, for wage and hour violations as well as PAGA. And, and PAGA is the Private Attorney General Act of 2004, which effectively deputizes a private citizen to step into the shoes of the Attorney General and seek to enforce the uh, labor code. And um, here, the defendants uh, had an arbitration agreement, of course, and it specifically mentioned that it prohibits employees from bringing, quote, a representative action, end quote. And that's obviously a nod to PAGA actions. The trial court granted the motion to compel arbitration. The plaintiffs ultimately took this up on appeal and argued that... So, so I think the first thing important to mention here, just as a side, is when you take standard employment class action type litigation or individual employment cases with an arbitration agreement and a PAGA, you're almost always going to have your PAGA action stayed if there's an arbitration agreement and the other employment kind of cases will end up going to um, arbitration. So consider whether or not you even want to do that and you want to just go straight to PAGA uh, and not pursue those actions. But in this case, um, the defendants had sort of an interesting argument about why the entire matter should have been sent to arbitration. Well, it was twofold. So first, uh, they argued a procedural argument, which the Court of Appeal kind of threw out, which was that plaintiffs, um, there was an untimely response to the arbitration petition. And then they also argued that the case on, which holds that uh, PAGA claims are not arbitrable, uh, Iskanian versus CLS transportation. California case. It's a California case. The defendants argued that in the defendants argued that Iskanian was no longer binding as it was inconsistent with a recent Supreme Court decision, United States Supreme Court, 
um, called Epic Systems versus Lewis. First of all, we're all very pleased with the fact that you know the distinction between the California Supreme Court and the United States Supreme Court. But more important is that what Epic held is that under um, the FLSA claims and the NLRA and the National Labor Relations Act that um, where collective bargaining agreements and collective actions by employees could not be barred by law, the Supreme Court nevertheless held that the Federal Arbitration Act, which is also an act of Congress, trumped it, sorry, bad use of the word, but trumped it because it held that nevertheless you could have a class action waiver, you can prevent people from joining the class action, whether it's an arbitration or otherwise. And this court, the 4th DCA, not that they disagreed with Epic Systems, but they said that Epic Systems doesn't necessarily overturn Iskanian. No, I think it specifically doesn't overturn Iskanian yeah. is what they're saying. Iskanian is still good law. Yeah, and I think it's, it goes further than that. It's actually what it actually says is that you may not be able to pursue an action for uh, class actions in arbitration if there is an arbitration agreement. But it has nothing to do with PAGA, which is a deputization of uh, private persons to bring actions on behalf of the state of California. Yeah, and, and the Court of Appeal here is kind of, I wouldn't say taking a shot, but they might be sending a message to the federal courts and saying that you know, we know about the Epic Systems decision, but we find that these decisions are unpersuasive. That's a word they use, unpersuasive. And they go on to say, because the courts did not fully consider the implications of the key TAM nature of a PAGA claim. And let's be very clear. Epic is a dumb decision from the United States Supreme Court. I mean, they had to do somersaults to be able to reach that because uh, the Concepcion case and the, the holding of the Federal Arbitration Act is very specifically a, a federal act and then they go one step further and they say, but the Federal Arbitration Act is a more important federal act than an act of Congress than the NLRB or other kinds of labor relation acts, which allow for collective actions to be brought. So, I mean, if you really want to talk about uh, an action by the Supreme Court that um, I think took a, the arbitration, mandatory arbitration, one step further, you look at this and you just see how ridiculous it is and how, how biased it is and how driven it is by a particular agenda. Right. And this is just a trend here. And we're, we're going to keep seeing this, at least from the federal courts. But it's nice to see that you know courts like this Fourth uh, District Court of Appeal in California are sort of fighting back or even if they're not fighting back, they're, they're securing important decisions like Iskanian, which held that plaintiffs have an unwaivable right to be able to pursue these claims under statute like the uh, Private Attorney General Act. Right, so our next case is Roger Myers versus Rallies, and uh, this is also a class action case, and this came out of uh, Superior Court in Yolo County, which stands for what, Sean? You only live once. That's I'm, correct. I'm certain that that's what the county is named for. That's right. Um, here, the plaintiffs alleged that they were required to drive company vehicles, carrying their own tools. They were technicians for a grocery store chain. They were required to carry, you know, dr drive company vehicles, carry their own tools, took directions from the company as to what they were what they were going to do when they were going to do it. But they complained that they were not compensated for the time they drove to their first job and also the time of between finishing their last job and driving home. And that could probably make up a substantial chunk if you look at the whole class. 
So let's start with what really the core holding is here. So they brought this class action. Sean, I think you've described it adequately what the class action involved. And the focus that the court had was on the order that the Superior Court made uh, denying class certification. And I will now— Can you read that to us? I will now give you a dramatic reading of that order. I think we have time, so go ahead. Take your time. Plaintiff's motion for class certification is denied. It went a little further than that. Plaintiffs fail to establish that a well-defined community of interest exists among the proposed putative class members. Based on the evidence presented, the common issues of law and fact do not predominate as required to support class certification under Code of Civil Procedure, Section 382. That is the entire order that the Superior Court made that the legal genius in Yolo County wrote on... um, this particular case denying class certification. And ultimately, what the Court of Appeal held is at the very end of the opinion, they write, we can't make a ruling based upon The this. term they used is impossible to make a ruling. They can't, they, the findings that the, if you want to call it that, the findings that the trial court made rendered review impossible. So they remanded it back to the trial court and asked for a ruling that considers the actual issues and provides a basis for its findings. Right. So the first important holding here is that a, that a, a superior court judge just can't simply enter an order denying class certification. If that were the end of the opinion, that would be fine. But then the first district court of appeal justices went further and spent pages, and I think about a hundred times longer than the Superior Court's um, uh, order denying class certification to explain in detail the law involving what exactly happened here with these drivers um, taking their trucks home and having to be at the direction of their employer. It's actually a helpful read because the Court of Appeal went out of their way to discuss two cases that came down after this Yolo County trial court's ruling, namely Ayala and Jones. And Ayala is super interesting because it explains that in these types of uh, cases um, that have to do with independent contractor or, or controlling employees, the question is not how the company exercises control, but whether it had the right to control. Uh, so that's that's an inquiry that this uh, Court of Appeal appeal believed that the trial court should have made. They couldn't have been more clear to the trial court that not only would they have to issue a, a more complete ruling, but the trial court better find class certification because if it comes back to the first DCA, they're going to find that the class should have been certified. It's, it's a very interesting case and um, something that can be relied upon when uh, looking to establish classes or class certification in these types of misclassification cases. Or asking a, tr- a trial court for a more complete order, because otherwise you're going to crawl your way up to the um, Court of Appeal and, and uh, find yourself reversed if it's not complete. So next, uh, we're going to talk about Garcia versus Salvation Let's Army. Let's talk about the Salvation Army. Let's talk about the Salvation Army. How much Army. time have you spent in the Salvation Army? Well, I actually had to join the Salvation Army because I didn't qualify physically for the real army. It, you don't. There is no draft. 
Yeah. Did you know there's no draft? All kidding aside, Salvation Army is a uh, religious organization, as we're going to find out soon, And if, in case you didn't know, but they are an organization It that was does... started in 1865 by William Booth, a former Methodist minister. And many people don't know, Brian was one of the original members of the Salvation Army in 1865. Isn't that right? No, that's not right. Okay. That's, that's not right All kidding all. aside, it's a charitable organization that does work to help uh, the needy. Uh, but this case involves an employment discrimination and ADA suit brought against the Salvation Army. So the plaintiff, Ann Garcia, worked for the Salvation Army. She had some issues with grievances filed against her. She took medical leave due to fibromyalgia. And then ultimately she was fired from the Salvation Army because she didn't return back to work despite getting a clearance from her doctor. So she filed two separate lawsuits against the Salvation Army. One was a Title VII violation of the Civil Rights Act for discrimination, and the other was under the ADA. So let's let's first talk about the Title VII case, which I think is more relevant to our discussion here, because under um, federal law, there is an exemption under the Civil Rights Act. There's an exemption under uh, the employment portion, the Title VII, for uh, religious organizations. It's the religious organization exemption uh, that the court relied upon, and which provides that religious organizations can't be uh, can't be sued for those types of claims under Title VII. Can't, you can't. Act. You simply can't sue a religious organization. And the question was: Was the Salvation Army a religious organization? Yes. And if it's a religious organization, you can't sue for violations of Title VII, the Civil Rights Act. Uh, you you can't bring any kind of lawsuit based upon that. So. That's the first holding. That's an interesting holding in and of itself, that if you're dealing with a religious organization as a defendant, you may have barriers to being able to sue them. Um, the second interesting holding is whether or not the religious organization exemption is a defense that's jurisdictional. And the trial court held, uh, or the trial court, which was the Arizona District Court, held that the religious organization exemption is jurisdictional, Therefore, an Article Three court doesn't have the power to hear that case um, if it falls into the exemption. And it also held that, therefore, it can't be forfeited. Uh, the, uh, that challenge or that defense can't be forfeited because here uh, the Salvation Army didn't raise this as an affirmative defense in their answer or initial pleading. Rather, the first time they brought it up was in their summary judgment motion. Now, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals said the outcome is correct However, it is not jurisdictional. It's a procedural defense, um, so it is subject to forfeiture. But you have to show that there was some sort of prejudice to the plaintiff resulting from the failure to timely raise it or raise it earlier, and that can't be. Uh, that wasn't shown here. So the religious organization seeking to assert that defense, the religious organization exemption defense, can raise it at summary judgment so long as the plaintiff uh, is not prejudiced by the late uh, uh, assertion of that defense. And, and the final issue in the case, which I think is far less significant for our discussion, but at least worth noting, is the ADA claim uh, that the plaintiff brought. The ADA claim was ultimately dismissed because the plaintiff couldn't show that she was disabled um, because the her doctor had given her a clearance, so there was no accommodation required at the time that she was complaining of it. So just to be very clear, though, the ADA has no religious organization exemption that I'm aware of, and the only issue there was that it just wasn't a valid 
uh, ADA type claim. Something else to note, by the way, is the scope of the religious organization exemption. It extends not only to hiring and firing decisions, but also retaliation and hostile work environment claims, which were the claims that were being made. Right. In oh, an open issue, because this case didn't come from California, right, is an open issue is whether or not um, the religious organization uh, exemption would apply under California law and under labor law under California. And, and I would guess that um, employers who were religious organizations can't violate wage and hour laws, can't violate other portions of the California Labor Code. And unless you bring the claims under the Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. So. All right, so our next case is Jackson versus Kaiser Foundation Hospitals. No, it's not a medical malpractice case. Uh, it's actually a FIHA case. What is a FIHA case? The FIHA is the Fair Employment and Housing Act, or what I referred to it earlier when we were not recording, which was, I think, the the Federal Equality and, and Health Act or something. Because you made that up. I, I made it up, yeah. So but it's it, the Fair Employment and Housing Act. Miss Jackson here was representing herself against Kaiser. She was unable to, at first, she was unable to serve the complaint, so re- she retained counsel to assist with this whole process. The lawyer advised Jackson to dismiss the lawsuit without prejudice, believing it can be refiled. The lawyer never entered an appearance in the case. That's right. Just advised kind of in the background. And Jackson didn't retain her. She never retained her counsel of record, at least. Um, But the lawyer did help prepare a voluntary dismissal of the action. So Jackson files the lawsuit, figures out there's problems with the lawsuit that she can't correct or doesn't understand how to correct, goes to a lawyer, and the lawyer's advice is just dismiss it and refile. Don't worry. It's the easiest, cleanest thing to do. And that's what happens. Well, sure enough, the lawyer, for some reason, miscalculated the statute and blew the statute ultimately when they tried to refile. Cautionary tale number one is giving free advice may end up costing you. In giving not thorough advice and just advising someone in the background instead of actually appearing in the case. So the lawsuit gets filed. The second lawsuit gets filed. It's not timely, and it's going to be dismissed because it's barred by the statute of limitations, and it's clearly barred by the statute of limitations. That's not even a close question. Jackson hires the lawyer, finally, to make an appearance and file an application for relief under 473B. Which is the statute that, under certain circumstances, a lawyer's declaration or statement that they've made a mistake or an error, uh, the court has some discretion uh, to grant relief. The Court of Appeal here affirmed the trial court's finding that 473B, that statute, does not apply to voluntary dismissals. Voluntary dismissals. That's the key because it's a voluntary act. And they were saying, well, it was we made a mistake under 473 dismissing it. Maybe logical sense, but the court says no, a voluntary dismissal is voluntary. If you had done something that led the court to dismiss your action against your objections, that wouldn't be voluntary. And in that case, that circumstance, 473, very well may work. But here they're saying because you did it voluntary, uh, you can't use 473. The action was barred, and we certainly hope that that lawyer who was giving initially probably free advice to this person had paid their malpractice policies because this is a big problem. And it just goes to show you that um, no good deed probably goes unpunished. That's right. There may be liability here that that lawyer faces now. That's all that's going to come of this case. 
So next we're going to go visit Darren versus Sandra Miller, uh, and this is a elder abuse case. And um, the reason that we want to discuss this case was because um, elder abuse is always a vehicle, uh, particularly in financial-related cases or certain types of injury cases. You can use the elder abuse statute um, to get additional damages, to secure additional damages, other types of relief. Uh, And on its face, this case doesn't sound terribly... um, uh, relevant to to a typical plaintiff's practice, but of course the facts are um, particularly egregious here. This was an 81 year old whose neighbors were consistently harassing and intimidating her. They taunted her. They threatened her. Uh, they threatened her spouse. They threatened her grandson. They let dogs menace her personally unchecked. Uh, at one point, the boyfriend of the neighbor ordered the dogs to kill the 81 year old. And she hired a lawyer and went in just simply to try to get a restraining order. Really terrible conduct here, um, but the defendant argued that the the case should be thrown out because there was no special relationship uh, between Darren, the plaintiff here, the uh, person protected under the statute, and Miller, that Miller had no care or custody arrangement with Darren, no control over Darren's real estate or personal property or other assets, which on its face might sound like a good argument because typically when we think of elder abuse, elder abuse statute, we think of someone in a nursing home, someone that's being taken advantage of by family family members or accountants or somebody that has a particular duty to them or insurance companies, which is elder abuse is, in fact, as Brian mentioned, a cause of action we've incorporated into cases against insurance companies or even against other defendants. Because there's personal injury elder abuse and there's financial elder abuse. And and they're both uh, certainly viable. Um, anybody who's over age 65 can be considered an elder. Uh, and it also applies to uh, dependent adults. So you could have somebody with a disability who also would find application under the statute. But here, the trial court said, you know, I can't issue this restraining order because there's no special relationship. There's no there's no connection. The Court of Appeal then reversed the dismissal of the suit, and it looked to the what it referred to as the plain language of the Elder Abuse Act. Elder Abuse Act is co- uh, codified in Welfare and Institutions Code Section 15610. It's 15610.07, and really... Everyone should take a look at this, and we'd love to hear from you if you ever have a case where there is someone that's over the age of 65 and you have some type of financial claim, negligence claim, even if it's against someone, like we said, that is not a caretaker or someone that does not have custody of the elder. And the Court of Appeal ultimately reversed and said that this applies to anyone, and there's no requirement for a special relationship between the abuser and the victim. So if you have this situation, keep that in mind. Contact us if you want to see a sample of how to allege it in these types of claims. Yeah, it's a, it's a very powerful statute, and I think most lawyers don't completely comprehend it or understand it. A lot of judges don't completely comprehend it or understand it, but ultimately you can treble punitive damages as a result of it. Um, you can seek other types of damages, including, in, in some cases, even attorney's fees. All right, our last case today is Anderson versus State Farm Mutual Automobile Insurance Company. Now, this case comes out of um, Washington State, and it involves removal um, of a civil complaint, which, for those of us that typically practice uh, plaintiff's work, um, I, I have a rule that 
federal court is bad, state court is good. And generally, I want to keep my cases in state court. I like state court. I like being in state court. I like our juries. I like our judges. I like our system. And in federal court, you know, you've got judges with very large dockets. They may not view your civil cases the same way. Unanimous juries, smaller juries, different rules, different procedures. And we're always constantly trying to keep cases out. But, of course, if you if you have a problem with diversity and you get your case filed, you may be removed. And it's for good reason that we don't like federal court. It's not anything we have against federal judges. We've actually have, fortunately, had some good luck in federal courts and have come across great judges, but they often have rocket dockets that have put you on very tight, strict, fast schedules, and it makes it more challenging. So defendants obviously want to be in federal court because those types of circumstances, those types of limitations or rules favor them, and it will ha- will put a lot more pressure on the plaintiff, and plaintiffs often have less resources than they do on the defense side. So in this case, the um, defendant was served with the complaint, but now there's some interesting statute in Washington that allows for a state-appointed agent, like the insurance commissioner, someone in the office of the insurance commissioner, to be served with the complaint that you have against an insurance company. So instead of having to actually serve State Farm, you serve the insurance commissioner of the state of of Washington in this case, uh, and that's deemed to be service. Now, first cautionary note, California has no similar statute, so that wouldn't apply in California. Don't go serving the insurance commissioner of the state of California with your complaints against insurance companies. It's not going to be valid, but it was in Washington, and you have 30 days to remove your action, and um, a little more than 30 days after serving the insurance commissioner of the state of Washington, um, they removed, State Farm removed the case, and they filed a motion to remand, which is the process and procedure to get the case back to state court, Right. And um, it went up to the Ninth Circuit, and the Ninth Circuit said you can't remand it because the 30 days doesn't start to run until the party has actual um, notice of the lawsuit, and serving the insurance commissioner wasn't enough. But that's not the end of the case. It went further to talk about the fact that the legislative history of the uh, removal statute looks to state law to determine when somebody is actually served. And so... The reason I think this is important is that we have to look carefully whether or not the removal and a motion to remand are timely. And the reason I, for this is because they don't want inconsistent findings through, you know, in different states because the removal statute is obviously a federal statute. It's 1446. So it's still 30 days, but it's 30 days from when under state law somebody is deemed to have received the complaint. So substituted service, for example, in California may be valid service, but the service may not, the 30 days may not start to run on the day that you leave or the complaint someplace or try substituted service. It may be longer than that. And and watch those 30 days because, believe me, as much as we consider ourselves smart and we want to make sure that we can uh, remand a case if it's improperly removed, the defense is at least as smart as us, and they know that they've got those 30 days, and they're going to try to get that case removed as quickly, uh, re- removed to federal court as quickly as possible. In this case, the 30 days began to run when the insurance commissioner or whoever the officer is forwarded the complaint to the actual defendant, and the defendant's representative received a copy of the complaint. So it's actual notice that matters. So always err on the side of caution when dealing with removal. There's strict deadlines, and keep an eye out for those. 
Uh, really, that's all we got today. I hope these have been helpful. I hope these cases are able to uh, make you a better lawyer and make you understand the law better. Uh, we're always interested in f- hearing from you. Uh, this is a civil action with Brian Kabatek and Sean Karnickian from Kabatek LLP. And please contact us with any feedback that you may have. Our website is kbklawyers.com. That's kbklawyers.com. We'd love to hear back about the podcast itself or about interesting cases you may have. Um, or interesting cases you've read about that have come down that you'd like for us to discuss or that you want to tell us about. 